Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. On today's podcast, we'll bring you a special episode, part of our recurring series, Ask the Mayo Mom, hosted by Dr. Angela Madke, a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic's Children's Center. Dr. Madke leads the discussion with Mayo Clinic experts and takes questions from listeners. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Angela Madke. I'm a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota, and host of this show about pediatric health topics where we take and answer your questions live. Because of COVID-19 and the safety measures we must all take to be safe, we're coming to you live today via Zoom to maintain social distancing. Today, we are discussing autism spectrum disorder, also known as ASD. Autism affects about one in 54 children in the United States, according to the estimates from the CDC's Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network. Joining us for this discussion is Dr. Maya Katusik, a developmental and behavioral pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Katusik, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So let's get right started, or let's get started right away. What is autism spectrum disorder? And can you speak a little bit about how the spectrum looks very different and there's huge variations um, that can lead to sometimes misconceptions about that singular term autism. Yes, of course. So autism spectrum disorder really is a wide spectrum. Um, And I often describe to parents and families that each child on the spectrum is like a snowflake. Um, No two children are exactly alike. Um, However, they do all have some overarching difficulties with two kind two major things kind of the social communication piece and some restricted or repetitive behaviors and that is known as also meeting criteria for autism so these difficulties can include deficits in social emotional reciprocity we call it so for example your child may have trouble initiating or responding appropriately to social interactions with peers or with adults and they might show like reduced sharing of interest with others Mm -hmm. they also can have deficits in nonverbal communication or um, so they may have trouble with eye contact or limited facial expressions and then the other the third kind of part is understanding or difficulty understanding and developing relationships so for example they may have trouble engaging in pretend or imaginative play without direction or can show little interest in making friends Um, and some of the examples of restricted or repetitive behaviors include lining things up or insistence on a really strict routine um, or some visual fascination with lights or spinning objects. So those are just some examples and not all kids fit exactly those examples. It's like I said, kind of a snowflake where they're all a little bit different. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful way to describe it. Um, What are some of those, the earliest signs that would be suggestive of autism spectrum disorder of the things that you just discussed? So the earliest ASD is diagnosed currently is between 18 to 24 months of age, um, because that's kind of the stage of development where we start to see children typically display more pretend play and interactive play rather than just that what we call parallel play or sitting next to each other. Um, And then so then the deficits in social communication or 
interest in developing and understanding relationships can become more obvious at that age. Mm -hmm. And sometimes also I want to stress that, especially in more mild cases of autism, children might not be diagnosed until much later when what we call social demands are even more increased. Mm -hmm. um, but I can speak to kind of the red flags as well that come earlier on. So some of the red flags to watch out for even earlier on in development would be a child with ASD may not respond to their name consistently by 12 months of age. They may not point to objects of interest, like if they see a puppy on the street or an airplane overhead, typically children's will, children will point to it and kind of turn to see if you're paying attention to what they're pointing to, usually by 14 months of age, but children with ASD don't always do that. Um, and they, like I mentioned before, may have difficulty with pretend play by about 18 months of age. And then other red flags would be avoiding eye contact, repeating phrases they've heard, which usually stops after about 30 months of age. So we call that persistent echolalia and then some odd body movements like hand flapping or spinning in circles would be some other examples. Okay. So if you are concerned that your child might be displaying some of these kind of more um, red flag symptoms that we call them that really help us kind of uh, raise awareness that we may have concerns, who should families contact? Who should they bring their concerns to? So there are several professionals and organizations you can contact if you have concerns. Um, I would recommend definitely speaking to your child's primary care doctor to discuss that you have concerns about your child's development. And you can even mention possible autism spectrum disorder if you're really concerned about that specifically. Um, they should be able to evaluate your child and then make appropriate referrals for private therapies and additional medical specialists like me potentially if they see that as needed as well. Um, and if your child is under three years of age, you as a parent or caregiver can refer your child to be evaluated by your state's early uh, childhood intervention services. So in Minnesota that's called Help Me Grow um, and you can find a parent referral form on their website. But if your child is more than three years of age and you're starting to have these concerns more, you can also contact the special education department at your um, local public school and request an evaluation for your child in writing. So kind of all these options can help at least initiate evaluations for your child and initiate therapies as early as possible. Mm -hmm. I just want to give a little plug for primary care since I'm a primary care doctor, yes. but your primary care doctor should be doing uh, screening specifically for your child's social emotional development um, around 18 months of age mm -hmm. and around 30, 36 months of age. And so that's such an important aspect of why people should go to their well child visits. It's yes. not just immunizations and growth. There's developmental surveillance where we're, we're constantly, you know, assessing the child in the office and looking at other things. And then there's specific screening tools that we use that are really, really helpful so we can start to identify things and make sure that we are looking at them early since you mentioned early earlier identification is going to be ideal. Um, can you talk a little bit more about why earlier identification is so important? Right, so um, the research has shown that the earlier um, the earlier we get children in to be seen and um, start intervening, the better outcomes there are for children and their families. 
Um, there's also uh, research to show that the neural plasticity, we call it, or the flexibility um, of the brain is most flexible at less than three years of age. So getting in at less than three years is ideal. Again, it doesn't mean that if your child is diagnosed later and into therapies later that that won't help. It's just that's the goal is to get the therapies as early as possible. Okay, so let's say that, you know, you've brought this up to your your primary care provider and they referred you on to a developmental pediatrician. What does that evaluation process look like for ASD? Yeah, so I first kind of want to make a distinction up front because there's kind of two parallel mm-hmm. <laughs> two parallel evaluations that might happen. So you okay. could have kind of that medical diagnosis or medical piece of an evaluation and then the educational um, educational piece and evaluation, there's a lot of overlap there. So the medical system, so that's your primary care doctors, developmental pediatricians, child psychiatrists, they can diagnose your child with um, autism. And I'll speak a little bit more about that. But then the educational system evaluates your child also for behavioral concerns or developmental concerns, but they're not required by law to kind of honor that medical diagnosis. So um, the educational system will usually classify your child as with autism if the symptoms associated with ASD are determined to affect your child's ability to learn in the school environment. I think that that's like always very confusing for families, understandably. Um, That being said, an evaluation for autism can look, in the medical system, can kind of look different depending on where you're living and what kind of specialists are available um, in your area, but generally you'll be evaluated by, uh, you'll have your child evaluated by a trained professional with a specialty in in evaluating children with developmental concerns, Um, and the specialist should get a detailed history from you as the parent about your child's development and behavior. They'll observe the child, they may administer kind of structured developmental testing for your child, and then the results of all of this taken together um, can help determine if your child indeed meets the criteria and has a diagnosis of autism. And then they can also discuss with you what kind of additional therapies and interventions would be recommended. So that's usually the process. You know, you mentioned the, the, the kind of parallel processes in the educational setting and the medical setting. Should should families pursue both? Are there benefits to pursuing both at the same time? Yes. So, like I said, there are definite overlaps, um, but I would always recommend both evaluations um, in the medical system and the educational system because, again, So trained professionals in the school system, like school psychologists, speech language pathologists, occupational therapists, they'll evaluate your child using similar tools that we would use. Um, And then they would kind of determine with you, hopefully, um, is the goal, to see if that would affect your child's ability to learn um, in the educational setting. Mm -hmm. And so again, that would give you, you know, the possible educational accommodations for your child with autism can help set them up even more for success in, in the learning environment as well. Absolutely. So who's involved in the, the medical evaluation process? You mentioned some of the school process. Yes. So it kind of depends, again, on where you are in, in the U.S. and what kind of um, what kind of resources are available there, but uh, generally either like a 
some sort of medical professional should evaluate your child. So like a developmental behavioral pediatrician like myself, child psychiatry, um, neurology, those are kind of some of the specialties that usually evaluate children for autism. And then a lot of the time also a, neuropsycho a child neuropsychologist will do um, additional testing. And we often also have like speech therapy and occupational therapists who do evaluations too to get kind of a full picture mm -hmm. of the child's development and to make sure that we kind of um, get all, all the aspects together before making a formal diagnosis. Right. And you mentioned that a lot of these people will be involved in doing some form of testing and evaluation. Are there specific names that, of the testing that families can familiar, familiarize themselves with? Yeah, so it again, it kind of depends on the specialist or how, what they what they prefer to use or what they've trained in in using. Mm -hmm. um, it's usually in younger kids and less than I would say less than four year olds, less than three year olds. It's usually kind of a play based standardized assessment, and there's a lot of different names of those. But basically, the clinician will get down um, with the child, play, do some like blocks, drawing, things like that, and do an assessment that way. Mm -hmm. um, and then in older kids, usually older than four or five, um, it's more kind of that paper pencil. We don't actually use paper pencil anymore as much, but it's um, that kind of IQ and academic testing as well, depending on your child's concerns. Okay. You know, I, I've, I've seen situations where children may have qualified for the educational diagnosis, but they haven't qualified um, in the medical evaluation under the DSM-5 criteria. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak a little bit about how, why that sometimes occurs? Yeah, so I see it both ways. Um, you know, it can happen both ways where okay. I'll, and, and so I'll see a kid and think, you know, they do meet criteria, but the mm -hmm. school doesn't you know, again, honor that diagnosis, which again, I kind of talked about. But the reverse, sometimes um, there's a lot of overlap in a lot of these different developmental and behavioral difficulties mm -hmm. in kids. So they may meet criteria for autism at school um, for educational criteria. Mm -hmm. But then with me, I see it more as potentially ADHD type of behavior. Behavior or what we call disruptive behavior with developmental delays. So there's just, a, or potentially anxiety. Um, there's a lot of, I like to say kind of overlap between ADHD and autism and anxiety, um, all of those of which we're evaluating for when we see your child. Okay. We have a great audience question about this kind of referral process. Um, they mentioned it's hard to sometimes either get a referral from their primary provider to a specialist, or sometimes it's hard to get into a specialist because there's, there's so few developmental and behavioral pediatricians. Um, how would you recommend that families overcome this or any, any tips to help them through this process? I know it's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. um, there's only, I think the last time I looked, there's only like 700 something developmental behavioral pediatricians in the country. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, you know, 20, 20 to 25% of kids have some sort of developmental or behavioral concern. So it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult to get in with us. I, I, I totally understand. Um, so in terms of what to do about that, mm -hmm. there's, again, you can talk to your school. I would definitely contact the school mm -hmm. and get 
in writing um, a request to have your child evaluated because at least that gets that process moving um, and gets them the educational accommodations. Um, and then, or if they're younger than three, that birth to three referral is also really, I would highly recommend that. Um, you can have your primary care, as you know, your primary care pediatrician can definitely refer you for private therapies like speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, if they're concerned about your child's development overall. So that's getting kind of some of the therapies started as well. The big hurdle is, of course, a lot of the time we see ABA therapies not covered if there's not an official diagnosis. Um, so I would recommend not only because there's so few developmental behavioral pediatricians looking into is there uh, you know, child psychiatry or child neurology um, or you know, a neuropsychologist in your area um, or accessible that could also do an evaluation for that. Yeah, Gr great advice for families. The other thing to, that I'm curious about, how has the COVID-19 um, pandemic impacted testing um, and the evaluation process for these children if so much of it is being done in person? I know. So we're obviously all going through a really unique difficult time um, that all families are facing, but it's especially difficult for kind of our patient population and for families that want to initiate or amend special education services for their mm -hmm. child. So um, it's, it can be difficult to get your child assessed for the school services in a safe and timely manner, but um, many school districts are still allowing for in-person learning mm -hmm. for children receiving special education services, but that's constantly fluctuating as well, which can cause additional stress um, and frustration for families. But I um, actually, the Minnesota Department of Education website has a section on special education COVID-19 resources, which has a list of a lot of frequently asked questions, including how do I get my child tested um, and evaluated, and I would encourage families to review that for mm -hmm. sure. And for people listening across the country, they could probably go to their local um, yeah. education department, their state education department, and, and look for those resources, I would imagine, yeah. as well. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Um, well, let's talk about kind of the role that these therapies play. You mentioned physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, ABA therapy. Can you talk about what these are, what, how they're helpful, um, and, and who's involved with doing these types of therapies? Yes. So, um, like you said, they're children. It's very overwhelming. You'll get mm -hmm. like, you know, bombarded with all of these referrals of different therapies. But one of the best evidence-based interventions is a behavior therapy called ABA or applied behavior analysis. Um, and I describe ABA basically as a method to teach. So it's not only used in children who are on the autism spectrum. Um, I've seen it used to teach kids math, basically, but it's, again, it has the best evidence behind it as a treatment for autism, and it helps improve behaviors you want to see, like, you know, I'm requesting something by using my gestures and my words, um, and it decreases some of the more difficult behaviors, such as extreme trouble with transitions, for example. So that, and it's all working through positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. um, I always recommend that ABA therapy be supervised by someone called a board certified behavior analyst, a BCBA. 
uh, one of the many acronyms you're going to hear um, today. And so, and in addition to the ABA therapy, your child might be referred to speech therapy, which would be working with a speech language pathologist on their speech and language skills or um, an occupational therapist uh, who can work on your child's what we call adaptive skills or activities of daily living and fine motor skills. And your provider may also speak with you about something called social skills classes and parent management training or parent-child interaction therapy. Those are all um, methods to help you as the parent also learn how to respond to your child's different behaviors and how to help improve that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, going through this process as a family um, may feel incredibly overwhelming as you're getting all these different therapies and different supports that are recommended. Um, are there county or local supports that families um, can access such as social work or case management um, to help them and how would they connect with them? Sure. So, um, the, so children who are diagnosed with ASD and their families are eligible for case management services through their local county. So case management services can include things like getting in-home medical or therapy services or physical adaptations or if you need to build a fence for safety at your house or respite care, which we can talk about in a little bit too, um, and connecting families with you know, appropriate financial resources that might be available to them. I would recommend the easiest thing, since this is kind of um, blanket across the country, you can do an internet search to find exactly how to contact case management in your local county of residence mm-hmm. is what I would recommend. Mm-hmm. And they can help connect with insurance too, that would maybe yeah. allow their child better access to um, yes. different resources and stuff as well. Yes, I would definitely recommend once you get the diagnosis of mm-hmm. autism officially, the medical diagnosis, you can contact your insurance company and see what services are covered with that diagnosis for your child. Absolutely. So how can families partner with their local school district um, or maybe community organizations that their child might be involved with to create routines and learning plans um, and structures to really help their child thrive? and um, and do well with those transitions that are going to occur on a daily basis? So parents, I I love to encourage parents that they should be involved in kind of all of these aspects. Because sometimes with behavior therapy or with school, you're used to just kind of dropping them off and then we'll see what, you know, what happens. So parents can be uh, really involved, should be really involved in meeting with their child's school and their therapists on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, they are allowed by law to officially request meetings with the special education team anytime they have a new question or concern about their child's um, learning or behavior at school. And I like to tell parents that as a parent, as their parent, you know your child best mm-hmm. um, and your your child's best advocate. So um, speaking to them often is and keeping in touch is is really great. Um, mm-hmm. And it's often helpful to have a very similar structure and expectations for your child at home, as at school, and as at the behavior therapy um, sessions and partnering with all of these different specialists, um, especially discussing the goals you have for your child can help mm-hmm. improve your child's behavior and development in all of those settings. 
Absolutely. You mentioned respite care. Um, can you explain what that is? Because that might be a new familiar term to someone whose maybe child has just been diagnosed with a developmental behavioral disability. For sure. So um, respite care is essentially having someone either come into your home or bringing your child somewhere um, to for you as the care provider to get a, a little bit of a break because as a caregiver of a child with ASD or developmental difficulties, these respite services can provide a much needed break from your constant caregiving responsibilities. So I often use the analogy of like in an airplane, right? They instruct you to put the oxygen mask on yourself mm -hmm. first before helping others around mm -hmm. you. And so that's kind of how I think of respite care. If you don't take a little bit of time for yourself, to help yourself decompress, be better rested, it can be really difficult um, to optimally, optimally help your child um, and those around you. And sometimes you may feel guilty or anxious that you're leaving your child in order to make time for yourself. Um, and that can make people, you know, stop people from seeking these respite services. But I think with appropriate respite care services, you can feel less stressed, more rested, better equipped to help your child. Um, there is the National uh, Respite Network, which you can search online, has a respite locator mm -hmm. um, and more information about respite services. And then again, as we mentioned, you can also speak with your county case manager to kind of set up respite services that way mm -hmm. as well. So receiving the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder for families um, sometimes may come as a surprise or something that they're going to be kind of going through the emotions of kind of coping and planning for the future. Um, sometimes this, this, this process for families may look differently. Um, and sometimes parents might have different perspectives about how they can navigate um, the diagnosis and treatment for their child. Um, and what would you recommend for families when they're, when they, when they're seeing different perspectives um, or different views about what's best for their child? Sure, so this happens a lot. And mm -hmm. ultimately, I tell parents and family members that it, at the end of the day, doesn't really matter the label or diagnosis that were uh, that your child has received. What matters is that we all want the best for your child, and that a diagnosis of autism, for example, can kind of open doors to make evidence-based interventions and therapies more easily accessible, which will again certainly benefit your child and your family ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, I also like to stress that the therapies should be evidence-based because there's a lot of different therapies that are wrongfully touted, unfortunately, mm -hmm. as treatments mm -hmm. for autism or a cure for autism. And some of those can actually be potentially harmful. Mm -hmm. um, so, and sometimes it's not just parents that have a different perspective, right? Yeah. On a diagnosis or Absolutely. treatment. It's mm -hmm. grandparents, other relatives, your friends, or even sometimes strangers share their opinions mm -hmm. about what they think is going on. Um, and so that's something also that I know parents and families have to deal with a lot. Um, yeah. And actually the Autism Speaks website has a pretty good guide to explaining the diagnosis to others that I think families have found helpful. So that's one thing to look, look up to. 
You mentioned that some, um, there's a lot of, of uh, noise on the internet about what has been shown to be helpful or effective or cure autism and whatnot. And some of it can be harmful, some of it can be deadly. Can you talk to some of like diets, medications and treatments, um, sure. some that are beneficial and some that have no evidence or maybe harmful? Sure. So um, in terms of medications, so mm -hmm. there are no medications that are specifically recommended just for autism spectrum mm -hmm. disorder. So there are a lot of alternative therapies that come up, as you mentioned, Hyperbaric oxygen is one, chelation therapy, um, mm -hmm. high-dose vitamins that are advertised as cures. Um, mm -hmm. Chelation therapy in particular, which is kind of taking metals out of the body, can be, has been deadly in kids mm -hmm. because it um, takes out necessary metals that are necessary for your body to function normally. Um, and none of these therapies have been proven to actually mm -hmm. treat autism or improve the behaviors. And um, your doctor may suggest medication to help your child if they have symptoms of other difficulties, like we talked about ADHD or anxiety, depression. Um, but you can kind of talk with your provider about that. Mm -hmm. um, as far as diets, they, I have had families try a variety of different diets because mm -hmm. that's been also studied, like lactose-free, sugar free, gluten-free. And um, unfortunately, there are also no specific diets in the scientific literature that have been shown to be effective. And I mm -hmm. definitely don't recommend eliminating anything mm -hmm. specific um, unless your child has another medical reason for mm -hmm. that. Um, and yeah, so I would recommend as I would for any child to mm -hmm. have a well-balanced diet. Yeah, and some children who have autism spectrum disorder may already kind of have uh, self-selected for very kind of few foods to start with, and so they may already be at risk for nutritional deficiencies, and so further selecting their foods may really put them at risk for harm and yes. other things that can come from uh, vitamin and mineral and, and protein deficiencies, so. Yes, I agree. What, um, we're getting really close to the end of our time, but I think this is such an important question. Um, what do parents need to know to help set up their home environment for success and safety for their child? Um, do you recommend things like, you know, schedules, um, visual supports, safety supports, routines, all those kinds of things? Yes. Yes to all of those things. Yes. So they, yeah. they, children with autism, more, even more so than typically developing children, I think, thrive on routine and a regular schedule. Visual representations of things are um, really great for a lot of kids who are on the okay. spectrum. So I often see like kids have difficulty with bedtime routine. You can make kind of pictures of what we're going to do for bedtime to kind of mm -hmm. set that up for them. Uh, Sesame Street has really good, if you go to autism.sesamestreet.org, they have a lot of really good examples of different kind of visual schedules. Social stories is also another thing I like to yes. um, suggest. So, Social stories are great for all children, neuro, yes. neuroatypical and neurotypical children. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. So those are those are kind of two things that I would definitely recommend. Awesome. Um, you've mentioned a couple um, national resources. So I heard Autism Speaks um, and Sesame Street Autism Resources. Are there any other national resources that are evidence-based and helpful for families supporting them through this diagnosis and treatment options? Yes. So I also really like Pathfinders for Autism. That's another nonprofit organization that has a lot of articles that are science-based 
released um, for parents and families who are dealing with this. Mm -hmm. um, the CDC website also actually has a lot of really good science-based information about autism. Mm -hmm. the, other, um, the other organization I would recommend, and this is not only for children who are on the spectrum, but the ARC um, is a national organization with chapters in most states, I believe, that works on behalf of all individuals with developmental difficulties, and it can help your family navigate school services, um, you know, possible government services that you and your child may be eligible for. Um, and I would also recommend that families do an internet search specific to their area for autism support groups, um, because it can really help to hear from and talk with other families who are going through similar situations. Absolutely. And then one other thing, you know, because there's so many things that are directed towards families um, that are mostly out of pocket um, and not covered by insurance, would you recommend they kind of speak to their, their medical provider about this before going forward with these things to make sure that they are evidence-based and not harmful? Yes. For okay. sure. Um, okay. And even some of the things that aren't necessarily harmful are mm -hmm. taking up your resources that could be used for things that are evidence-based. Yeah, so absolutely. I think um, my goal always as a provider is to be kind of open. And I think all providers are mm -hmm. open to the questions. We're not judging you. There's mm -hmm. so much out there. You just want to do the best for your yeah. child. Um, so I think talking to your primary care provider or your medical specialist about those questions is, is great. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for all the knowledge you shared with us. Thank, thank you, everyone. You for having who, me. Oh, was yeah, it was great. It was so it was so fantastic, and hopefully, it will be a wealth of resources for families as they they go through um, this process. Um, and thank you, everyone who who joined and and sent in questions. If we didn't answer your questions in the live broadcast, we will be sure to answer them directly to you on Facebook afterwards. Um, you can catch the next Facebook Live Ask the Mayo Mom on December third at eleven a.m. Central Standard Time. We'll be talking with two of our pediatric gastroenterologists, Dr. Sarah Hassan and Dr. Dana Steen. Thank you everyone enjoyed remember or who joined please remember to stay safe out there with COVID-19 pandemic please socially distance wear your mask get your influenza vaccine um, and just be kind to each other everyone have a great day Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts to see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org then click on podcasts thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.